Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Amen. Amen, and welcome. So great to see all of you today. Uh, good morning, and, and welcome. And uh, uh, so excited to get into this series with you, where we're sort of at the front end of this thing called the story of the Bible, where we're taking a look at the big picture of the Bible, where it came from, and what it's all about. Because while some of us may know some Bible stories, many of us may not know the story of the Bible. And so each week we'll be taking a look at one of the crucial plot points of the whole thing, all starting with the letter C and moving in, uh, through those in the weeks up to Easter, and if you miss one, you can certainly catch up on our podcast and website. And, and here's why I'm so excited about this and why it's so important to know the story of the Bible, because if you don't know where the Bible came from or what it's all about, it's really easy to ignore or to dismiss or to throw away those Bible stories all together. And some of us in here are probably on the verge of doing just that. Maybe some of us have even already done just that because, you know, some of us were raised perhaps in a church or a Christian environment and some of us were, were handed a Bible and we were just told, hey, you should believe it. And when we asked, well, why? People say, well, because it's God's word. Well, why? Because it's God's word. Uh, we were told and some of us, we got a little older and we began to ask some more questions and maybe yes, it was you and you didn't like some of the answers to the questions that you asked or maybe like some of you, you had a professor that liked to, to pick on parts of the Bible and that persuaded you to think in a certain way or you had a roommate who caused you to think about the Bible in a certain way or maybe even some of you had parents who dismissed the Bible and and it caused you to think about it in a certain way. And regardless of, of where you came from, let me tell you, if I were in your shoes or if I were in their shoes, your professor's shoes, I'm sure I would feel the same way you feel about some of those Bible stories. But as we've said, and this is so important to see, the story of the Bible doesn't really begin with Genesis or with Joshua or with Jonah or with one of the parts of the Bible that professors love to pick on or maybe you have had trouble swallowing for whatever reason. The, now the story of the Bible doesn't really begin at the beginning of the beginning. It really begins, the story of the Bible does, towards the, the beginning of the second half with some documents written about the life and the death. And here's the word, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And here's why that word resurrection is so important. That word is so important because if the resurrection had not really happened, there would be no the Bible. 
There wouldn't be. Because in the moment that Jesus of Nazareth died on that cross, in that moment there was no the Gospels, there was no the Epistles, there was no the Church, and there was certainly no Tabiblia, the the Bible. Uh, The only reason we have what we call the Bible now is because hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people saw Jesus really live, really die a bloody death on a Roman cross, and then saw him alive again, over and over. And when they saw him alive again, that's when they knew, oh, this is altogether new. This is something brand new that God is doing in the world. And these first followers of Jesus, they were almost all Jewish at first, as they converted away from Judaism and into the radical repercussions of what the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ meant for them, they began to do what Jesus had instructed them to do, which was to go out now into all the world and to share what they had seen and what they had been taught. And as they did this and as they preached, not Judaism, not the, not the law of Moses, not the temple system or the priest or the sacrificial system, which they did not want, but as they preached the resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ, now Greeks, uh, Romans, pagans, Gentiles, Africans from all ethnic backgrounds began to turn away from Rome and the gods of Rome in their own polytheistic background, and they began to do what was formerly and seemingly impossible. They began to do what they had not been culturally conditioned or taught to do which was to believe in Jesus. And as these Greeks, Romans, Africans began to turn away from their, their false gods and they embraced Jesus, they discovered, and rightfully so, that he was Jewish. And they asked, well, what could help us understand Jesus more and better? And so they saw, well, if Jesus was Jewish and, and he quoted the Hebrew scriptures and he said, though the Jews don't believe it, that they were all about him what we call the Old Testament, but what they call the the Law and the Prophets, if Jesus said all that was about Him, well, we should do with those Scriptures what He said. We should go looking for Him in there. And so that's what they did. In the middle of their their persecution, in the middle of the empire into which they had all been born, into which they now live, this Roman Empire that was attempting to exterminate them, all these emperors, all along from Nero to Diocletian, they were attempting to make Rome great again. That's what they were doing. They were seeking to restore the glory of a lost, fallen empire. And so they said, you know what, we're going to pick on a, a small minority people group. Because you know how many know it's convenient to pick on a small minority people group. We're going to call them Christians. And we're going to blame them for what's gone wrong in the Roman Empire. And as they first instituted policies that sought to marginalize this minority people group, when that didn't work, they said, hey, we're going to widespread do execution, torture, and pain. That's what they did. And so in the middle of all of that, these first Christian converts, they picked up what we now call Genesis, this scroll. And they began to see in there what Jesus had said was about him, what Jesus had said was about a, the Yahweh, the Jewish God, his Abba, his Father. And what they found in there gave them courage to persevere and to stand up under the pain and threat of death they were experiencing daily. And as they read these scrolls, this scroll we call Genesis, originally it was just called In the Beginning. Fancy title, I know. They said this is our story because Jesus said it was his story and he said it was true because it was about him. They discovered that the story of God is really the story of us. So let's ask, where are we in the story that they found? Well, as we've seen, they picked up Genesis and they read first about creation. We looked at that, about how 
one true God made the world not from violence or power, but from love. And they read about the, then the catastrophe, another C word, that people brought into the world. How broken humanity spread this sin disease across the world. And by the time they got to the end of what we call Genesis 11, it looked like humanity was at a dead end. And at this point, they would have read and discovered something amazing. They would have read and seen how God, the Creator, takes off His Creator hat, and God picks up and puts on another hat, a founder hat, a people founding hat, a nation founder hat. And they would have read that in order to bring about the Redeemer of the world, Jesus of Nazareth, that God first founded a nation. And to do that, it began with the calling of one person, one man, Named Abram. Abram. Now later on, you see he's called Abraham. You ask, well, what's the difference? Well, here it is. Well, Abram means just father. Abraham means exalted father. So first, he's just daddy. Later on, he's big daddy. Yeah, he's big daddy later on. Because, and because daddy and big daddy are the same person, we're just going to stick with big daddy Abraham for today and call him Abraham. And by the way, how many of you fathers in here would just like to be called exalted father? Maybe just a little more often by your kids. You would. Maybe not every day. You're like, just throw me a bone, you know, every once in a while. And by the way, moms, for you moms, this also happened to his wife, Sarah, because at first she's just called Sarai, which means princess, pretty great. But later on, she's Sarah, noble woman, like an ancient queen. That's what the word means. And so, by the way, kids, if you're listening today, and I hope you are, just know Christmas might go a little better for you. If you walk in the house and you said, what's up, queen? What's up, Big Daddy? You know, I love you. Not Mom and Dad, but Queen and Big Daddy. We'll take that. All right, anyway. Wife said, that's discipleship in the home right there. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, <clears throat> humor in the message, check. We're moving on. All right. But these Christians, uh, uh, who would have rather been killed than confess Rome as eternal or Caesar as Lord, imagine what comfort it was to them when they picked up the scroll of what we call Genesis and they read these words. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country. Oh, oh, what's that? They would have asked to follow God. Abraham had to leave his loyalty first to his country behind. They would have asked, isn't that what we have had to do? We've also had to become citizens first of another nation, of a heavenly kingdom. And God said, go forth from your relatives. They would have asked, what's that? Abraham had to leave his ethnic group behind as his primary identity marker? Yes, they've said, we've had to do the same. God said, go forth from your father's House, what's that? Abraham had to leave behind his source of blessing and provision. He was cut off financially, yes. Well, what did God promise him to make it all worth it? Here it is. God said, go to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. Oh, what's that? They would have asked. God called out one person and said, through you, now the whole world, now even non-Jews will be blessed through one person. 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, before he was ever born, that through him, we Gentiles, we Africans, we Romans, we Greeks, would be the one thing, the one word, blessed, that God calls his perfect creation. Yeah, that's right. 
What did this show them then? What does it show us today? Think about it. You've got to catch this. The calling of Abraham shows them then, us now, three things about what it means for God to make a promise. We're going to look at them in turn. First, here's what it shows about God's promise-making, promise-keeping. This shows us first when God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. When God may, hey, I got one amen. That's a pretty dang good statement right there. You can remember that one for about a week, I think. When God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. Come on. No matter, this means how long it takes, no matter how slow it seems in coming, God has not given up on his promise to you. No matter where you are today, no matter if you're in the middle of some situation, you feel like it's all falling apart. It's all going to pieces. God is not slow in keeping his promises, as some call slowness. No, he is involved in your life. And if you're here and you're concerned or broken even about your future, let me just tell you here, you ought to go home. You ought today pick up Genesis 12, read it again, and think about what it means and say to yourself, look at this. God made a promise. And when he makes a promise, he keeps a promise. And God is always right on time. Even if it's not your time or my time. My favorite college professor was this uh, older Jewish guy, and he taught this philosophy course that I loved. And uh, One day he called me into his office to talk about this paper we had to write, uh, and he knew that, that I love baseball, and so he was an Astros fan. I, he gave me these like front row, behind home plate tickets to go watch games. I wasn't an Astros fan. I'm from Dallas, full disclosure. But hey, not going to turn down free tickets and the free nacho bar and the all-you-can-eat, you know, whatever, and Coke stand and all that. And so uh, he'd taken an interest in me, invited me into his office to talk about this paper. And when it came up that I was a Christian, I was always trying to work that bit in, Uh, he asked me this question. He said, oh, okay. He said, do you then believe that Jesus, apparently this is what he asked all unsuspecting, you know, Christian undergraduates, but do you believe that Jesus could have come into the world at any time, or did he have to be born when and where he was? In other words, he was asking, could he have been born, say, in the 20th century? He said, it would have solved a lot of problems, you know. Would have like video and stuff. Or he said maybe he could have been born a lot earlier because Jewish or not, or Christian or not, you know, the world got noticeably brighter when Jesus appeared. Maybe he could have born, been born earlier and saved the world a lot of problems. You know, why didn't his light come earlier? Could he have been born at any time and still have the same effect? Or did it have to be right then? Now, Before I tell you what I answered, let me just say two things. Number one, I was super nervous about answering because I'm thinking, you know, is my grade on the line here? You know, like paging, you know, Overachievers Anonymous, right? I mean, I cared about the grade. What do I have to say to get the grade, right? And second, before I tell you what I said, let me just remind you again. I just, I said, you know, especially then I was a Christian, you know, not necessarily a a theologian. And now you're saying, well, Morgan, not a lot's changed. But okay, yeah, you'd be right. But anyway, I said, Hmm. I think he could have been born at any time. Sure, why not? Why not like South America, 14th century? And he looked at me and he said, you are a Christian, right? And I'm like, ugh. And I'm feeling like, I have chosen poorly. Yes, poorly. And he said, if you're a Christian, don't you believe in the sovereignty of God? And I kind of, you know, shrunk a little lower. I mean, he's either sovereign or not. He starts preaching to me. He either knows what's best for the world or not. And now I'm like slouching, you know. And he says, if Jesus really is your Messiah, he really is the point of my Torah. He's the son of a sovereign God. Don't you think he had had been born at exactly the right moment? And now I'm like on the floor, like groveling, you know. And I'm thinking there's no way I'm making an A on this paper now. And he said, Morgan, 
I'm just messing with you, man. I'm just messing with you. It's got nothing to do with your paper. And, but I've never forgotten it because he was right. He was right. And that's what Genesis 12, the calling of Abraham, is showing you. Genesis 12 is showing us that God knows what he's doing in history. Even if it doesn't seem like it or look like it, he knows what he's doing in our nation, in our lives, even when we can't see it or when we like him to all together be on a different timetable. Right. And if you're a Christian, let me ask you the same question. And you believe in a sovereign God. Don't you think he is able to bring to pass his promise at the right time in your life? Hope you'd say, yes, I do. Listen, if you're trusting God for that, fill in the blank for that job. And it seems like it's a long time in coming. Or that uh, healing in your body you're trusting him for hadn't come. Or a change in that person. Or a change in our nation. Or a change in yourself, perhaps. Remember, God has made you a promise, many promises. Let me just give you one today. Psalm 37, 4. If you delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. And if you're wanting to get married today, and it seems like God's taken a long time, let me tell you, He's promised if you delight yourself in Him, He will give you the desires of your heart. If you want to have a child, it seems like it's taken forever. If you'll delight yourself in the Lord, you got a promise. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Now maybe the desire might change. Maybe God will change your heart about that desire as you delight yourself in him, because that part comes first, right? Or maybe that thing does happen just the way that you're believing for. But either way, no matter what, you've got a promise. And the calling of Abraham shows you that when God makes a promise, God keeps his promises. Look what he did for Abraham. He kept it. Though it took thousands of years for the world to be ready for it. That's number one. God makes a promise. God keeps a promise. But second, look at what else God's promise does here. When God makes a promise, God's promise actually reveals his power to the world. His power to the world. And this is so important because this is, this part, is what the writer of Genesis is trying to show you. He's trying to show you, here's the word, the power of this God, the one true God. What do I mean? Well, let's ask this question. What is every story about Abraham really about? What, what are they about? What, what, why are these particular stories in here and not like others? What's the common thread running through every story about Abraham? Here it is. Every story about Abraham is really a story about a threat to God's promise. Every story is about what looks like a threat to the power of the one true God to be able to deliver on his promise. Think about it. When God calls Abraham, what's happening? Oh, big famine in the land. Starvation, probable death. If, but if Abraham doesn't live, what happens? Not good, right? If he starves and dies, no future family, no future nation, no Messiah. But wait, there's more. First story, he goes where? To Egypt, as for him was a, a relatively younger man, right? He's in his prime here, been big Abe. He's out in the desert all chiseled up, yoked up like some of you fine brothers are today. Got a super desert tan going on, looking good. Got his beautiful wife, Sarah, there with him. She's so lovely. Men keep trying to take her to be their wife. People could do that in that day. Not a lot of police protection. No bill of rights to help a brother out, help a sister out. So when Abraham meets Pharaoh, king of Egypt, what does he do? What does Abraham do? He lies. He says, Sarah, it's just my sister. A believable story. No children running around to give evidence to the contrary, right? So Pharaoh takes her, attempts to make her his wife in every sense of the word. 
But if Sarah marries Pharaoh and she leaves Abraham, how will they ever have the child that God promised them that brings about the Messiah? If Sarah marries Pharaoh, how will God's promise come to pass? The answer is, it won't. It won't. If Sarah marries Pharaoh, there'll be no child, no nation, no savior, and God will be shown to be weak, powerless, and a liar. Oh, can you see? The writer of Genesis, he's so good. I mean, he's sneaking theology in there on you. Theologian in disguise right here. But what then does this God do? We see he brings down judgment on Pharaoh's house to stop this sin from taking place. He intervenes with judgment to preserve his promise. Oh, but one day he'd do even more. One day to bring about you and me, a new people, a new family in the earth, not based on ethnic background, but on trust in Jesus Christ. God would send down judgment again, this time on his own house, on his own son, to put an end to evil and to preserve the promise that he made. Let's keep going. What's the very next story about? I could do this all day. You're thinking, I hope not. I might, though. Uh, What's this very next story about? Abraham fighting not just one ancient king. Oh, but count them. Five ancient kings. Why five? And not just one to, like, have even odds. Oh, come on. Don't you know good storytelling? When When you see it, when you read it, I mean, why is this movie so compelling? overwhelming odds, right? Why is this movie so compelling? Why is this movie so compelling? Overwhelming odds. Next one. Why is this movie so compelling? Come on. Overwhelming odds. Why is this this next movie so compelling? Overwhelming odds. Spider-Man so compelling. Same thing. Oh, sorry. I lost some of you there with the action stuff. We'll go old school on you. Why is this movie so compelling? Yes. Overwhelming odds. Will Will Smith swallow his ego? And will he and Eva Mendes get together in the end? Overwhel- it looks impossible. And that's what's happening here. So Big Abe goes up against count him five kings to bring his nephew home. Oh, but if Abraham dies, if he's killed fighting to rescue his nephew Lot, who has turned his back on Abraham's goodness and grace and generosity, if Abraham dies in battle before the child of promise is born because there is No child yet. If he goes to his grave, can you see? Fighting for the very one who has endangered Abraham's own life. What will happen to the promise of God? The answer is, Abraham dies here. It won't happen. And God will be weak, powerless, and a liar. Oh, but God delivers Abraham, rescues his lost family. But one day, God would do even more than that. Because one day, God's true chosen one, true called out one, Jesus, would ride out into the greatest cosmic battle to rescue all of us lots, all of us who have chosen to live our own stupid, selfish, self-centered lives, who have taken advantage of the goodness and grace and generosity of God. And one day, Jesus wouldn't just risk his life like Abraham. He would cost him his life. He would go to his grave on a real Roman cross to do battle with evil and to rescue us and bring us See, when God makes a promise, it reveals his power to the world. Number one, when he makes it, he keeps it. Number two, it shows us his power. But three, finally, you've got to see this. When God makes a promise, it doesn't just show the power, his power to the world. It reveals his heart to us. So let's ask. Now, let's ask this big what if. What if, what if, say, Abraham didn't succeed 
but he, you know, he blew it. He failed. And not just that, what if he got so discouraged? What if it seemed like God was taking so long, he took matters into his own hands, and he failed so big we could call it this, you know, the, what is it, hashtag epic fail. Epic fail. What if Abraham got on that hashtag, right? And they, he even gave up hope altogether and tried to have a child with his own wife's slave. What if he did something as terrible and as evil as that? You say, did Abraham do that? Yeah, he really did. He, he, he slept with his wife's slave named Hagar. After that son was born, Abraham, nation founder, sent her out into the desert with a boy to die. This early attempt at an ancient abortion. That's what he's doing there. You say, well, what does this show us? You may say, well, Morgan, I know exactly what this is showing me. This is showing me how patriarchy, come on, ruins the lives of people, women, and children in that system. And on one hand, if you thought that, you'd be right. That is part of what this is trying to show you. You say, well, there is nothing else. That's what this is about. This is terrible. You know, come on, Morgan, Ariana Grande, thank you. Next. Next story. You know, next chapter, whatever. Let's get past this part. And, oh, wait. If you're offended by this, this part, like other parts, maybe you're like many people. You're a secular person. You think the Bible is supposed to be about the good people who show you how to live. Or maybe you're offended by this because you're more a conservative church person. You want to just skip it. You're not really offended. You just want to skip it. Don't look there. Because you think the Bible is just about people showing you how to live in a good way. But if you think that, if you're reading the Bible like that, let me tell you, that's how most people read the Bible. You're reading it only to learn what the rules are. So you can save yourself. You can do good, do the good things, and be a better person. But let me tell you, the story of the Bible is not about you first and what you have to do first. It's about God first and who he is first and what he does first. Let me put it like this. The Bible, you say, well, where am I? Let me tell you. All right, you ready? Here you are. The Bible is about you the same way this movie is about this character. He's in there, right? I mean, doing stuff. He's flying stuff around. He's kind of growling a lot. He's got no pants on. or Don't look there, right? But it's not really about him. It's about someone else first. And the Bible isn't really about you and your goodness first. It's about another character, God, and his goodness first. I mean, look at this text. Look at this passage. Look at, look at Big Abe's life. You think it's only about uh, the point being that God loves the good people? No. Hear me. The Bible is about, though, then and therefore, the one who comes to the very ones like Abraham and Sarah and even Hagar, yes, and you and me who can't rise above our own culture, who are so trapped and bound by our culture moment, so broken by our past or by some system that we can't even get it right. He comes to the ones like you and me and these people who on one hand, one chapter, one day receive his grace and then we turn around and we reject it and we forget it and we take matters into our own hands in the very next chapter. See, this is showing us God is about, this is about him, how he loves us, his heart for us and how he's coming to rescue us if you will just give him a chance. There's a psychologist, uh, maybe you've heard of him, his name is Daniel Goleman. Daniel Goleman says that on every team, uh, in every church, here at Mosaic, this happens, uh, in your family, uh, in your, in your, with your roommates or, or your spouse, there's what's called, he puts it like this, an emotional economy. Emotional economy. He means every time 
that I interact with you, or you interact with me, or you interact with someone at work or in your home. You're not just exchanging information. You're not just performing tasks. You're actually influencing one another's moods. Influencing one another's moods. He puts it like this. Emotions in a group are more contagious than the flu. Emotions in a group are more contagious than a flu. Than the flu, which tells us this then. That putting unconditional encouragement, permanent affirmation and love and joy into someone else can change that person's life, can grow that person's life, change the dynamic of a family, change the dynamic of a team, change the dynamic of a church or a business place. And I'll go this far. Putting that kind of thing into the world can change the world. Sharing love, giving grace, changes people. So what's God doing here? Come on. He's changing Abraham's emotional economy changing by the strength of his power oh by the goodness of his unconditional promise he is changing the course of abraham's life and therefore the world a few years ago one of my uh, sons finished his, his baseball season this incredible way uh, he made his league's all-star team yeah 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 right and he went into this big central texas all-star tournament and, and they went in as a number one seed in their division and during that tournament we lost to the number two seed right behind us. But to play back through the loser's bracket, don't you love that term, right? Surprised our, our culture hadn't changed that one yet, like the, the struggling team's bracket. Uh, we haven't made it that far yet, bracket. But anyway, still called the loser's bracket. Uh, first service didn't get that. I made that up right then. So anyway, during that, that we lost to that team. Had to make our way back. And we would have to beat that other team that had beat us twice to win the whole thing. And the first game, again, do or die, win or go home. We were behind the whole game, game one, but came from behind to tie it in the last inning and then won it in extra innings. Incredible. Set us up for the championship game the next night. Now, the coach of the other team, the villain in our story today, had been unpleasant to be around. His true colors came out. Man, he just came unglued in the last game. Uh, before the game, he sent his parents and his team over to take the shady, cooler dugout, even though it was supposed to be ours. You know, grr, right? Even though by rule it was ours. And when our parents arrived, he came over and personally bullied all our parents into moving over. Started barking on them. When my wife came over and asked him to respect the rule, and the other parents, the movie started jawing at her and said, Woman, shut your mouth. Now, she was wearing his T-shirt that day and said, Y'all need Jesus. <laughs> it's a true story. And one of the other parents started mocking her shirt and said, Look, honey, she's the one who needs Jesus. And at this point, man, it's about to blow sky high, right? We could have forced him to move by rule, but I came back to our coaches. We're talking about what to do. I said, Listen, God sees this. He just does. He just sees it, Right? I, got, I, mean, I, got, I heard a message somewhere on Genesis 12 and Abraham and all that. So I said, he see, it's going to be okay. God sees us and stuff's got a, a way of working itself out. We're going to do to them as we'd have them do to us. So we took this brutal side in the heat, and the game got off, and the, it was terrible. We were getting killed, losing. And the other coach literally started taunting us by aiming pelvic thrusts at our dugout. And our fans, uh, when they hit back-to-back -back home runs, uh, one of these, uh, the players' little sisters, you know, wheeled a little tricycle over to their dugout, overheard the coach cursing us, calling our players' names. She starts crying and turns back around and ride her tricycle uh, back over. Uh, when my son got out to pitch later in the game, the coach starts yelling at him. 
in the whole middle of the deal to try to rattle him. They tried stall tactics, changed pitchers four times in the last inning to run out the clock, had the catcher on purpose throw every ball back into center field. Oh, whoops, center fielder misses it. Got to throw it back in to run the clock. Even the umpires didn't like the guy. Tough to swallow, but the whole game, I'm saying, listen, God sees us. Things got a way of working out. And going in to the bottom of the last inning, we're down 8-3, to three, down by 5. You can only score 6 in one inning. You see where this might be going. And the kids were pretty down. We had like one hit the whole game, striking out left and right with one out, bottom of the last inning, down by 5. I'm thinking, it's over. <laughs> And it's over. So I turned to our team. I said, listen, I said, come here, guys. All these little 11, 12-year-old faces. I said, no matter what happens, win or lose. I said, I am proud of you. I did. I'm proud of you. Win or lose, I'm so proud of how you guys have done. After the game, no matter what happens, we're going to hold our heads high and go and shake their hands and show them respect. I said, but you know what? I think we can still win this game. I think we can still win it. We only need, like, just one guy to get on. They're like, yes, coach. Yes, coach. We can do it, coach, you know. And you know what started to happen? Player after player started to get a hit. And little by little, the emotional economy and the dugout began to change. And we started scoring run after run. That's like a point in baseball. Sorry. And then it came down to being down by one run. With two outs and our bottom hitters up. And what did they do? Oh, every one of them gets a hit. One guy hadn't had a hit the whole month. With two strikes and two outs, gets a hit to tie the game. Man, everybody goes crazy. My son literally begins to cry in the dugout. Just emotional, happy tears, right? Oh, it's just amazing. You know, the, 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 the tension was so intense. And the next guy gets up, hits it to the fence to win the game. Yeah, pretty amazing. And our, yeah, our dugout explodes. I mean, parents are streaming out in the fields. I mean, these, the, the coaches are hugging like facial stubble, interacting with, you know, like dads are crying. You know, this one mom is from Mexico starts coming out saying, si, senor, si, senor. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. <laughs> Everywhere. The other catchers, I got on video slamming his stuff down. It's amazing. That's the power of an emotional economy, right? What did it start with? I mean, just some words, right? Just telling some kids, we're proud of you. No matter what, you can do it. Now, it doesn't, I know, it doesn't, always work out like that. Believe me, I know that. I know that. And justice doesn't always happen on a little league field or in the office or in our nation or in a world in our lifetime. At the end of the day, and yes, it's just a game. Thank you. We should do well to remember that. And yet you know that when someone comes into your life, someone pours unconditional affirmation, acceptance in you, serves you, loves you, it changes everything. What did God do for Abraham? The same. He came to him over and over and over, and it changed him. It changed him. But here's what this also means. This also shows us that the salvation that God brings into the world and wants to bring into your life is by sheer grace alone. God supernaturally reached out to Abraham. Abraham wasn't looking for him. Why? Because God calls us by his own glory, his own power, not ours. Abraham cannot produce the child. Sarah cannot produce the child that will one day produce the nation that will bring him out to deliver. God had to supernaturally intervene in his own body and in Sarah's own body. Why? Because God saves by his own glory, his own power. Abraham couldn't earn it. He couldn't accomplish it on his own. You say, well, what did he do? Here's what he did. Every time he just responded to God, he responded to God. When God told him to leave it all behind, he did it. When God told him to trust him with his body, he trusted him. When God told him to trust him culturally, he did it. When he told him to trust him financially, he did it. Can you do the same today? Trust God at whatever pain 
point you're in. Let me tell you, when God makes a promise, He keeps a promise. When He makes it, it's to show us His power, and most importantly, to reveal His heart to us. He's come to rescue you. Rescue you. If you'll just give Him a chance today. Be faithful to you, no matter what.